Welcome to the Unchanging Education Podcast. This is Season 5. Kicking off Season 5 with Episode 1. The Problem with Student-Centered, SC Ed. A topical detour, focusing on, quote, the problem of student-centered education, or the problem with SC Ed, by Rebecca Winnick and Nina Powell, from October 11th, 2022. And also NDGT, Neil deGrasse Tyson, on real time, October 14th. So I received this email from HXA, Heterodox Academy, and it was entitled The Problem with Student-Centered Education. Clearly, it caught my eye. And of the featured content, the top article from Heterodox, the blog, was The Problem with Student-Centered Education. By Powell and Wannick. Quote, when we adopt a student-centered educational philosophy, irrespective of how well-meaning we may be, we shortchange students. Rather than succeeding in empowering them, we fail to equip them with the skills to deal with the challenges they will invariably confront as their life after university unfolds. Now, this is focused on university. Uh, I've got an interest in SC primarily in K-12, but I tend to think of education quite as encompassing. And I think that their critique applies to all levels. This essay is a special repost from Times Higher Education, responding to recent events in the chemistry department at NYU responses further exploring the advantages and disadvantage of student-centered learning are welcome. So you can consider this a further exploration of the disadvantages of SC. And indeed, I hope it is welcome. So I want to read the essay in its entirety with only some fairly sparse commentary and then comment a bit more. Student-centered learning is intended to promote a more inclusive environment and to democratize the classroom. It is a broad philosophy, but its fundamental principle is the belief that education should involve a partnership between student and educator. Further, it advocates that education should be personalized to meet students where they are, with curricular design and course structure based on their individualized learning preferences. Such an approach is increasingly hailed as the gold standard in higher education and is ostensibly well-meaning. It embodies the idea that education, as a route to social mobility and desirable careers, should be accessible to as many people as possible. We have no argument with that view. And there may indeed be some value in student-centered learning if the practical constraints of delivering a personalized education, such as class sizes, are considered, particularly if students' ambitions align with the educational goals that deliver the best opportunity for their long-term growth, development, thinking, and citizenship. But these conditions are often not met in today's marketized mass higher education. 
Many will contend that technology and online learning offer a solution to the personalization issue, giving students the ability to self-pace using asynchronous content or dynamic tests that adjust to prior mistakes. However, such hopes are often belied by the messy reality of how students actually engage with such content. As for the issue of education goals, universities have in essence given up trying to tell students what is good for them. Fueled by the shift towards student-centered learning, student satisfaction is widely accepted as the primary indicator of educational success. But this does undergraduates a disservice because student satisfaction bears no necessary relation to true educational objectives. Take assessment, for example. Students find exams stressful, so we are told to reduce the number of exams. Neither do students like to read, so we are told to assign easier and shorter readings. Students find it hard to concentrate, so we are told to break down lectures into small chunks and intersperse activities in between. Students enjoy media content and are happy to engage with YouTube and social media, so we are told to incorporate more videos and make course material and assessments more creative and interactive. Some students don't like to speak in class, so we are told to make sure there are myriad ways students can participate without actually having to speak. Such, again perhaps ostensibly, well-meaning educational initiatives alongside grade inflation, flexible deadlines, warm language and feedback, deny students access to the type of educational experience, again I'm thinking of the true educational objectives, that universities were designed for. They shortchange students by appealing to their immediate wants and feelings rather than their potential for greatness, their capacity for reason, and their fundamental need to leave university better than when they arrived. The student-centered mindset has led to a dumbing down of curricula and a constant pressure on educators to motivate students, rather than a pressure on students to take ownership of their own success and failure. This is because it appears mostly to have been adopted without a principled questioning of what a university education is for. The result is that student-centered education leaves undergraduates in a state of constant busyness, but also constant worry about the value of these low-stakes endeavors. Students complete more and more simple and straightforward tasks, worksheets, projects, quizzes, and so on, without the opportunity to think about what they are doing or learning. It is no wonder they lack motivation. They are denied the life-affirming pride 
that derives from achieving something genuinely meaningful and built on hard work and without critical feedback on the work they do undertake students are not given the necessary guidance they need to improve in this sense meeting students where they are keeps them where they are a transformative educational experience and when we hear transformative we might be thinking of sc transformative is supposed to be the point of a university education students deserve opportunities for challenge so that they develop the necessary strength of mind and character to meet the myriad challenges they will inevitably face in the higher stakes contexts of post-university life such strengths will also equip them potentially to rise above their personal and social circumstances and pursue the life they want. If they decide that making courses less intellectually and emotionally demanding, less demanding, equates with making education accessible, that is an unkind assumption. We are in effect saying that students attending university lack the necessary ability to withstand an education that is intellectually and emotionally demanding. Students deserve to be taken seriously and to be seen as capable, both in terms of their capacity to improve and in their capability to find resolve against momentary unhappiness. So I wanted just to take a, a quick brief note to pause here on um, capable and finding resolve and thinking about antonyms. And simply, I would say, if we assume that students are conversely incapable and or weak, then we can create a kind of learned helplessness. The guise of a student-centered SC education is also at its core dishonest. It tells students that they are uniquely skilled and uniquely talented, often touted as empowering their individuality. However, Unless you are paying for a private tutor, education takes place in groups alongside several, if not several hundred, others. Moreover, in an era of mass higher education, staff-to-student ratios are falling rather than rising. There is no way that an individual educator can tailor lessons or assessments to each individual student's needs and preferences. There is no way. Nor should they. Endorsing the perspective that each student should be treated as unique and offered personalized accommodations would fail to push them to develop a healthier mindset that connects self with surroundings. Specifically, if part of a university education is about preparing students for post-university life, they must begin to recognize that their uniqueness is situated in a shared environment that requires adjusting the self to the situation and not the other way around. We should not disempower students 
by telling them to expect the problems they face to be resolved by the people around them, recognizing and catering to their needs. Doing so takes away individual agency and results in a sense of entitlement, generally not viewed positively by employers, partners, family, friends, or colleagues. We should empower students by motivating self-efficacy and self-regulation rather than fostering an approach to social life where expectation leads to passivity and victimhood. Furthermore, the push for a student-centered education seeks to position students as equals in the classroom such that their individual desires should be given equal weight with the expertise of the educator in determining what occurs in their courses. While designed to promote inclusivity through removing all presence of a privileged voice, such misguided democratization once again harms students. Students need an appreciation and respect for accumulated knowledge, and instilling it does not entail a misuse of power in the classroom. There will always be situations in life where power is shared unequally, but that does not necessarily mean that something unjust is taking place. Yet many educators now encounter students who feel insulted, offended, or threatened when their ideas are disputed or their essays corrected. Similarly, invoking lived experience as the correct lens through which to process information means that subjective opinions are given the same, if not greater, weight as facts and established theory in classroom discourse. A push to see beyond one's own narrow viewpoint is interpreted as a critique of self rather than an intellectual exercise designed to promote critical evaluation. We don't mean to imply that students should not be given the opportunity to question what they are being taught or to disagree with their instructors. In fact, we encourage this. But it is most beneficial when students are open to learning that their perspective might not be correct and that others with many years of experience might know more than they do as novices. Taking a student seriously is not to pander to their ego or worse, to falsely flatter them in pursuit of their approval or in fear of their complaints. Taking them seriously means treating them as capable of receiving genuine feedback about their limitations in an effort to see them improve. They must be taught how to appropriately and effectively debate controversial topics and engage with those with whom they disagree, working through the discomfort of having their perspectives challenged. Engagement in society sometimes requires individual compromises to larger group goals and the recognition 
that one's unique position might not always be supported by others. The problem is that students unchallenged in their assumptions about their own uniqueness and value will be ill-equipped to respond appropriately within environments that require this recognition. We all lose when educators can no longer assist students in developing an understanding of citizenship and respect of expertise. Would any of us want to live in the high-rise building designed by the architect whose professor was told that they could not correct a student's error? Would any of us want medical care from the physician who decided that the best medical school was the one that provided its students with the least rigorous course load? Increasingly, businesses are saddled with new employees who do not want to do entry-level work, who feel that any negative feedback is insulting, who do not respect the need to put in hard work to move up the hierarchy, and who do not respect the knowledge of those with many more years of work experience. Similarly, managerial training is increasingly becoming an exercise in developing skills to manage employees' self-esteem instead of to develop them through challenge. These situations exist because universities are failing to do their job in providing students with a demanding education that would foster self-motivation and risk-taking. So I'll pause here briefly to note two different orientations, one I associate with SC and the other with TC. So for TC, um, self-esteem is generated through overcoming challenges or obstacles. This is the opposite of what's being described here in this article about SC, where self-esteem is a precondition for overcoming challenges or obstacles. It's a fundamental distinction, the relationship between self-esteem and overcoming. If the expertise and guidance, and perhaps also experience, of an educator were not necessary, students would be able to educate themselves with the myriad resources available today, not least by reading books. Rather than worrying about obfuscating the power dynamics between a lecturer and students, we should embrace the experience, knowledge, and range of perspectives that inform educators' practice. We should set the stage for students to accept failure and confront personal shortcomings on a path of continued self-growth, valuing the long-term gains that derive from effortful engagement with what is hard. It is also important to recognize that part of the shift towards SC is not driven by a desire to promote inclusivity per se, but to disguise the desire simply to get students through university. Graduation, not education, is the desired consumer outcome at the myriad pay-for-a-degree institutions that compete for the many students 
whose pursuit of a university education is motivated solely by a perception that it is necessary even to land entry-level jobs, let alone promotions. That perception, promoted by employers and universities alike, leads students to see higher education as a chore, a stumbling block or a checkbox on the way to something else. They are unwilling to put in the necessary work and want the easiest path to recognition. So again, thinking of antonyms to bring things into relief here, quick comment that this idea that it's on the way to something else versus that it's good in itself, education for its own sake or for education's sake. And also they touch on this pay for a degree and this issue of university degree vendors is very important too. Quote, when students' behaviors and goals are in conflict with what is necessary for the learning that underlies a transformative education, it is especially important to turn to the educators rather than the students for direction. And even when students have the right goals for their education, it is short-sighted at best to expect them to know how to design and structure curricula, syllabuses, and assessments. At worst, it is cruel. In addition to their deep knowledge of their disciplines, most university educators also have years of experience of developing pedagogical techniques that effectively educate. It is incongruous to expect that students would have more or more accurate knowledge of how their educational experience should be structured. So there's another quick note here about useful vernacular that is didacticism versus autodidacticism. Didactic refers to a teacher and a student, and autodidactic means self-taught or self-teaching. And autodidacticism often takes the shape of inquiry in SC versus the more, you might say, traditional teacher-centered or TC didacticism. And the point here is that most students cannot teach themselves well. And I'll touch on this later, but this is especially important with a decline in literacy. Okay. And, you know, as the saying goes, you learn to read, then you read to learn. And so if we have increased autodidactic self-teaching or inquiry-based teaching, that is not itself predicated on a very solid foundation of literacy, uh, it seems doomed. I also want to hearken back to the architect, engineer, and the physician, medical doctor examples that were given um, a few paragraphs above. That no one would want a self-taught professional. No one would want an, an autodidact MD that didn't go to medical school but just taught themselves. When we adopt a student-centered educational philosophy, irrespective of how well-meaning we may be, or ostensibly well-meaning, I think, we shortchange students. Rather than succeeding in empowering them, we fail to equip them with the skills to deal with the challenges they will invariably confront as their life after university unfolds. 
When we see these consequences and choose to do nothing, we perpetuate this unkindness. Instead, let us respect students' potential to access the transformation that a rigorous university experience can offer. Only then can we claim to operate in a student-centered fashion by providing students with the education they deserve. And that's the end of the article. So my final note is that it's interesting to note that transform or transformational is in the literature a very SC word. And it's being used here in a critique of SC and that is a good thing. The authors may wish to reclaim the term and again that is good because paradoxically by not focusing on trying to be directly transformational and instead by offering good solid sturdy reliable educational experiences especially in a knowledge-based curriculum we will recognize just how transformational education already was or arguably the hyper emphasis given to transform has the adverse or iatrogenic effect or defect of meeting students where they are and leaving them there okay so now i want to comment more broadly and this was very significant for me coming across this article certainly in the context of having um, you know been interested in this topic for a while in a critique of sc but also in a promotion of tc and trying to de-emphasize sc and to emphasize or re-emphasize tc re-emphasize in a historical sense in an ultimate attempt to try to bring these things back into what I call a creative tension. And certainly I've had Heterodox Academy in mind in the, the spirit of their mission. Um, talking about, for example, you know, viewpoint diversity and other phrases that we associate with uh, heterodoxy, the Heterodox Academy, um, which I think most people may come to through, through uh, Jonathan Haidt. So my optimism tells me that the writing is on the wall and that change is upon us. After 100 somnambulant cryptomnesic years of SE, there is a new cutting edge that says enough of this SC. But a critique of what is is just the beginning and seekers ask what else is there if the entire educational system is sc and we don't like it or we, we don't seem to believe in it or at least not anymore what else is there uh, in terms of what we can change or pivot to which is which has really prompted me to delve into tc and to try to develop or rehabilitate this because we as seekers we cannot fall into this error to continue the same spirit of flailing, unrooted reinvention and perpetual re-revolution in education. 
So this critique of SC, I would not wish for it to be seen as signaling the need for a new radical revolution in education. No. We'll be much better served if we instead look behind us. And if we can tap back into the neglected soul of education. So I'm talking about possible stages that can occur after such an illumination that may start with a dissatisfaction with the status quo in education and from dissatisfaction to recognition that the status quo is student-centered. And then I want to say the crux of this is not to be misled by the SC-told fable that it, SC, is still combating TC domination. I think this is dead wrong. Then, to confirm that if SC is status quo, or SQ, if SC equals SQ, and this might seem a little bit um, crass, but if the status quo sucks and the status quo is student-centered, then we should seriously consider that student-centered sucks too. SC solves false problems. For example, it imagines an epidemic of cruelties that existed before its arrival in history. Because teachers exist to solve the unkind, uncare problem in a transformational way. And the ineffective, namely boring, problem of how teaching used to be, and others. But the long-term value of this identity focus, personal, individual, atomized, and the individual personalization problem, to care primarily for students' personal identity or personal experience, violates professional practice. Teachers should care primarily for students' public identity, that is, as a student, or as the role, as the productive capacity, and of their performance, especially academic. Now, certainly, this doesn't have to be unkind. And I think of the acronym uh, UPR, Unconditional Positive Regard. You can try to have unconditional positive regard for your clients or students without going too far. So the normalization of love may be progressively SC, right? I love my kids is the way that teachers come to talk about their students. Now, what's the long-term value of this identity focus? Again, on the personal or the private. Student as individual, not as classmate. As learner, not pupil. In an egalitarian anti-guild. When I think of the guild, again, I'm thinking of this kind of great tradition of Europe of of a novice with an expert, or you could say of a master with an apprentice. Or this implicit teacher's competition of who loves their kids more, again, which I think serves no one. As well as the new character education to militate against hate. 
the same way a missionary education would be against evil to safeguard against an internal evil. The, the new internal evil might be something like bias. And to assault external evil. Again, just replacing evil in a missionary education with hate in this secular or kind of paradoxical secular religion. And fortunately, an ostensibly hate-filled world is a target-rich environment. And, as the saying goes, hammers see nails. Neo-paladins with war hammers, with the skill of zeal, with the aura of fanaticism. The particulars have changed, but this is a regressive education clothed in progressive garb. And there's also a subtext of therapeutic fanaticism that goes beyond mere safetyism. It imagines a hurt or wounded child under assault, in your charge as a teacher, under your protection, and so anything you do seems permissible and necessary. It also imagines unfeeling parents, Archie Bunker types. SC increasingly seems to see parents as anything but allies in education, and thus also vice versa. Parents regard teachers with suspicion. And then over-facilitates the modest emotional aspects of the teacher role. That teachers are conditioned to want to transgress. Being that teacher, as in the 1984 movie Teachers, over-involved, the secret bearer, not the standards bearer. As with most therapeutic forms, this is indulgent or bourgeois and loses any sense of long-term vision. It's triage. It's stuck in the inescapable now. It's an identity crisis, divorced from the identity of a dedicated student or a humble novice apprentice. It's too inward-looking or navel-gazing due to the therapeutic flavor. Students have a public role to play in relation to teachers in schools. They have a duty. They have to meet challenges and overcome obstacles. The article above does very well to address this and addresses many of these, these topics quite well too. To instead fixate on the individual, personal, or private, or atomized identity. And on this basis, to exempt and remove challenges and obstacles. And especially in cases where we open the door to these exemptions and removals, that is, or whereby students know they need only say one magic phrase and they will be lifted out of this public performance-based reality of school, which seems, low stakes or not, not to, not to matter much anyway. So willing are teachers today to abandon rather than uphold it. Then, only your personal private identity matters and you're the expert in it. There's no need for a relationship with an expert teacher. And anyone imposing demands upon you doesn't understand. 
anyone focused on your future shall be sidelined. Only the irreducibly contemporary therapeutic present can exist. And no long-term presiding presence manifests within. So you have the private identity, the person or child with feelings, versus your public identity as a student with a thinking job to do. Education is a public institution. It is not well suited to this therapeutic turn. It operates best focused on thoughts and thinking and intellect. It's a rational enterprise in public space. It's not personal or appetitive. Teachers need to condition students out of feelings-based opinion sharing and instead ask questions like, why do you think that? Give reasons, justify and explain. How do you know? So the endless expressional quest in this therapeutic setting of SC. So on the one hand, to express feelings, not thoughts. And always in this contemporary sense of thinking skills, skills and tools, things that seem only to exist in this very present-based reality, not erudition and the problem-solving racket and not becoming something like this stuffy word, learned. Another point that I find interesting and I think not well discussed is an emphasis a kind of a grand emphasis on something like hopes and dreams, right? Follow your dream from your education to your career. And in and of itself, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And people should aspire to, um, to, to greatness and to do great things. Okay. But also we can't forget in this mention of citizenship, which man, which I think we recognize as important, but it's not often unpacked. So you have a duty to others. I'm thinking back again to the long period of dependency where every young person has to take a lot, right? And that the needs of young people, of course, have to be met. And, you know, the younger they are, the more their needs are. But thus also, as you become older, there's more of an obligation to meet the needs of others. And it may sound strange, but there's also this duty to repay society. This, this idea almost exclusively exists in the criminal context, right? The phrase to pay your debt to society. But it, it exists for everyone. We all get a lot from the world as it is or from the status quo. And we are all, in a way, indebted to others. We've had our needs met by others, Throughout this entire period, this, this lengthy period of dependency and development. And we have a lot to give back that is, in a sense, owed to repay like a debt. Another point that I think relates to this, this hopes and dreams emphasis is perhaps an increased focus on being interesting, I'm thinking of students here, but perhaps also teachers to a lesser extent. Um, and I think this is, again, people have always wanted to be interesting, and we've always had 
celebrity culture in a way, but perhaps not to the same extent. And the celebrity culture and social media that more and more, I think people get a sense of their, you could say, self-worth by trying to draw or to attract attention, right? Again, thinking about the direction of attention, whether it's flowing in or out, being interesting and drawing or attracting attention versus a more traditional sense of a student, which is someone that is interested, being interested and paying attention or giving your attention. Okay, so coming back to TVSC here again. So I've already mentioned the, the endless expressional quest to express feelings, what you think that is liberated in the way that it is untethered, okay, or that it's not tied, and that there's no particular way of knowing, that we always have to, that the, in SC, the plural of ways of knowing is always used. And also not the philosophical term of epistemology. That there's a personal dream and there's attention seeking. And part of this is teachers giving attention to students, which again is important and I think has always been a fixture in education. But again, I'm, I'm setting you up for the, the this reverse arrow of attention flowing from where to where. So teachers paying attention to students with a context of individual or individualized learners, and that this is meant to maximize efficacy. Now, all of this versus a feeling intellect to express thought, including, of course, what other great minds have thought in rooted knowledge. That also implies a life of service to others in terms of the duty of a citizen and of attention paying, of a regime of attention. In the classic or traditional sense in education, students paying attention to teachers, and that it is a class, classroom, and that it is efficient. And we have to be truthful about this. Instead, we have this over-promise and under-deliver problem with SC. And the silver bullet fallacy abounds. Strangely, I think that we should under-promise, right? Education that says of itself, we're going to read books and students will perform and some will fail or they will not perform well. It's not grandiose, but we can see how it over-delivers. Hence this whole kind of project about unchanging education because SC inverts TC based on going back to season one I talked about this dual fable right that TC um, was bad in these two ways both normatively and descriptively that teaching used to be you know boring and ineffective descriptively and also normatively or, or morally bad in terms of the you know cruelties that were inflicted upon children. So this is the creation myth of SC, that in the beginning all was bad. Now, we see with, with this more politicized, change-agent, uh, pro-activistic type idea that not only is all bad, but also that students have to go and fix it. 
So in the beginning, all was bad, and the presentistic messiah complex that mostly with teachers, but, but also this is transmitted to students, we're here to save and heal the world. And teachers are here to correct the evils of what preceded them and what they imagine this cartoonish imagery of TC, where kids were hated and bored. And now instead we have therapeutics and entertainment. And we're making it good, they think. But the truth is that they're ruining it. Again, these two ideas about the therapeutic and entertainment, or the entertaining. And that it's kind and caring, and also that it is effective, rather than cruel and boring, or cruelly boring. And again, this is what I'm thinking of as the dual fable, right? That, what sounds, I think, appropriately Orwellian, that TC is double bad and that SC is double good. So, it may feel like therapy and be entertaining, but the result is that it's not demanding. Really, I should say therapeutic, because therapy itself can indeed be demanding upon perhaps both the analyst and the analyst's end. But it's a therapeutization of education. It's a way that education is being changed. So I think, again, it, the point stands. The result is that it makes education less and less demanding. The more entertaining and the more therapeutic it becomes. So if it's too demanding and it's not therapeutic and it's not anything like television or like the experience of a smartphone or an app, where in this kind of setting, undemanding, therapeutic, entertaining, you only need to know yourself. And ultimately, you can be passive. And I'll talk about this later as well. But the word active is constantly used, as well as the word critical. But I think this is what we might call a smokescreen. That if you're not in a demanding environment, then that's going to be more passive. Whereas when demands are placed upon you, then that's more active. So again, it's, I think it's less active and more passive, but it cloaks itself as the opposite of what it is. It misleads. There's a dishonesty here. So anyway, the idea is that, well, if this rise of SC is predicated upon this dual fable and that SC is mostly what we would call a negative theory, that it's based upon not being something else, it defines itself in terms of what it is not, and it is not TC. Then simply, one thing that we can do is just to uninvert, or the term that I use is to unchange education. That SC changed it, and it changed it for the worse, and what we need is unchanging education. And also to start to revive this creative tension that I think probably the best example I can think of would be this debate uh, this sort of theoretical pedagogical contest between Dewey and Bagley. The classroom is a 19th century invention, or as Neil Postman says, a 19th century technique. And it's best served in that same way. Book, paper, pen. TC, guided, directed, or didactic. Not 
laptop, tablet, smartboard. Classrooms, classes, classmates, or cohorts. Not individual, personal, private, atomized learners, each with radically diverse needs. The existence of a class, not in a Marxian sense, but in a good morning class sense, presupposes shared common needs. Classrooms composed of no more than 20 students, in my opinion, and one teacher. With no more magical or alchemical thinking, that one teacher can tutor 25 students simultaneously. No, it can't be done. And there's no there there with universal design for learning, differentiation, modification, accommodations, individualized education plans, etc. None of that makes the impossible possible, nor scaffolding. And no more bad faith martyr type teachers claiming that, well, they can do it. They can tutor 25 students simultaneously because they've bought into the magic of all of this thinking. So what's wrong with you, other teacher, saying that <laughs> this can't be done? Say no, because you know it can't be done. This is the problem with the individual, individualized, individualizing model that I think the article touches upon. Then what can what can be said of these refusing teachers who know what they can and can't do? Well, they might hear, then we will find someone else who will lie and pretend or burn themselves out and die trying. It's the worst model available and it's ascended into dominance in education. Liars and martyrs make for poor educators and results in poor education, that is, poorly educated people. Because when you overpromise, we often think of the kind of quintessential example of corrupt politicians. Right? When you overpromise, like a corrupt politician, you can easily sound good. For example, this you know, political analogy, we're going to expand all of our popular programs and cut taxes. How? Efficiency. But really, how? Crickets. In terms of uh, the cricket sound, in the absence of sound. Educators are keen to condescend and undercut one another at times. The seat of this overpromise problem is the word transformative. Because if, in this condescending way, if all a teacher can muster is to quite pathetically transmit or transfer in the banking model, and again, this whole talk about banking from Fieri is, as I've stated, it's a straw man or even a hollow man. Again, the whole SC creation myth, the whole dual fable, it's all a straw man. It's a hollow man um, meant to attack TC or the whole tradition of education in bad faith. So if all you can do is, quite pathetically, merely, solely, all you can do is transmit knowledge to students, well, 
that's obviously not inspired. This attitude is killing education as much as anything. And it has to be stated that the, the only person who could think this, that transmitting or transferring knowledge is just some really easy thing that anybody can do and it's not worthy of the ambition that education should set for itself, knows absolutely nothing about teaching. Like the people who are actually able to do that, uh, you know, how you pass knowledge that one person has and how you pass that on to not just one other person, to onto on to a lot of other people. It is such an art. It's such an incredibly difficult thing to do, right? That you start off in a room where one person knows something and no one else knows it. And then over a period of time, everyone knows that thing. This is something that we need to have the utmost respect for that we've completely failed in. We just dismiss it, right? SC, I think, largely is incredibly guilty of what's called the poo-poo fallacy. Oh, that's all you're doing? You're just pathetically transmitting, you know, information, uh, content to people? Yeah. Like, you try it. <laughs> okay. So, the faux hero actual villains say we need to go beyond that we need to be transformative we need to unlock the human potential in everyone without demanding hard work that is exact and exacting so that they change the world as change agents education needs to be beyond ambitious they must be prideful and pride came before the fall in academic standards and performance they made, as I said, a straw man or even a hollow man of a noble institution so they could override it and underwrite it. It's the same structure as this strange anti-Asian sentiment in education. These hardworking, studious types can only memorize, but they can't think critically or creatively. And they're using these unfair practices to excel and get into the Ivy League. Again, I always want to draw it out that way because, like, you know, that's not real education. All they're able to do is get into Harvard. What do you mean? All they're able to do is, like, the hardest thing in education and you just dismiss it out of hand? Instead of remembering, they're just following a proven model of achievement. And that actually, the success of that example tells us that we should expand that approach. No, we'd better block them and reassure ourselves that our methods, SC, produce, that produce no Ivy League caliber achievers can stand uncontested. So that, I think, is what the real subtext of the whole um, Asian students in Harvard story that, that I think most of us will probably be at least somewhat familiar with that there's a kind of a resentment over a over the you know gleaming success of students not whose education did not conform to the you know the the capital you know one true way and it's the the reason that it, it draws so much ire is that 
SC does not want to have to compete with TC. It just wants to eliminate it. It doesn't want to have a competitor. I, I think because it's not particularly secure in its own efficacy. Okay. Because such a contest to test their efficacy would spell their doom. So we need a contest. We need a schism. This division, I think, to draw out TC and SE into clear relief. And then we need to see what a value we can get from each and what I, you might say dialectically, call TVSE, teacher versus student-centered, without allowing a new hostile takeover. SC has shown this ability, and again, this take-no-prisoners political thrust to just take over again. Uh, so I think we do want a schism to draw these things apart, and I think a dialectic, or I say in this creative tension, this heterodoxy in pedagogy, or pedagogical heterodoxy of kind of holding both thoughts in our head at the same time, teacher and student-centered, or teacher versus. Again, to try to eclectically take the best from both. But again, without allowing SC to just completely take it over again. Because again, there's a political zeal, there's a fervor that it has that good traditional pedagogically sound teachers don't have. And they don't defend their teaching practice the same way that the others attack it. Okay. So another important point here is this phrase, contagious enthusiasm, which is predicated upon loving your subject and knowing it well. Again, the expert, the expertise. So you love your subject and you know it well. You don't love your students and you're not trying to know them well. And you want them to love learning not you, their teacher. And that this to me suggests a very different kind of temperature between TC and SC. The teacher loves the subject. They love this topic or this book. And that that helps students to love it too. And that's this indirect manifestation of love in an appropriate way in, in an institution like education, in a place like a school. Versus this more direct approach that I think exists in SC. That you need to love your students. And only then they'll care to learn. Right? They have to know you care before they care to learn, you might hear. So if you love your students, then they'll care to learn. Again, after they've learned, you care. And this opens the door to teacher over-involvement. That's unprofessional and excessively intimate. You want to promote a love of learning, not you're loved, so only now can you learn. So there's also this dual rise. I, I touched upon this briefly. The dual rise of inquiry-based or autodidactic, self-directed, self-teaching learning. Self-directed learning, which I think is much like self-teaching, coincides with a decline in literacy. And again, as I said, the problem is that one learns to read, then reads to learn. Only with literacy can you really teach yourself at all, I think, let alone well. 
So again, let's underpromise. Let's not promise transformation, but you know the three R's. Let's promise literacy and numeracy. Then we can overdeliver, because, for example, learning to read is transformational already. We can achieve what is transformational indirectly or as a byproduct of good, solid education. We don't have to seize upon transformation as a direct object. Again, I've touched upon this earlier, but it's always more efficient. Anything that you can achieve passively as a byproduct, if you can generate something as a byproduct of another activity, then there's just an incredible efficiency to that, right? Rather than seeking to deploy more resources simply to generate something that another process can achieve producing as a byproduct or indirectly. I'll have to try to think of an analogy from this, from, from the physical world. Accepting one's station as a novice and acting as one might in a guild, as a humble apprentice to an expert. It has the added benefit of being reliably good with very little destructive byproduct. And remember, illiterate autodidact is an oxymoron. Plus, a distraction-rich environment where they teach themselves. You put an illiterate person in a distraction-rich environment. And again, I'm thinking primarily of technology here. I know that SC wants to embrace technology in the 21st century learner, 21st century classroom rhetoric. But again, put it, put a distracted, illiterate autodidact. It's just there is no such thing. So a distraction-rich environment where they teach themselves. Again, this reintroduces distracted autodidacticism versus focused didacticism. And the choice is clear. This whole emphasis on the active, the active idea, manifests also in terms of activity and I think the authors of the article do really well to point out busyness. So this whole active idea is a lie too. Because simply if you make something too easy, then it's all too easy to be inactive. But also, and they touch upon this just at the very end, that SC, that student-centered, in terms of this, you know, the, the core of the idea that the student is at the center, whereas the student wasn't at the center before. That this is a kind of a lie as well, because students are less accountable for their own success, and thus the teacher becomes even more responsible. And I've described this as, in the didactic, didactic situation, the teacher is responsible for teaching, and the student is responsible for learning. But increasingly, the teacher is responsible not only for teaching, but to ensure learning. So clearly, the teacher is more central in SC, even then in the so-called teacher-centered. Now, this gets a little bit confusing with all this, you know, mixed-up terminology. But SC actually makes the teacher even more central, but in a regressive or undesirable way. And again, that there are... I'm, I realize I'm using the pejorative term of lies. Um, lies meant to address a fable. 
and rewrite the present self as hero. The past is the villain, and past teachers were villainous. Past students were victimized. And as if now, only now, we actually care and we actually teach. We remedy the fear and ignorance that reigned hitherto. Again, this is my perception of a tendency in SC. And it's madness. It's institutionalized, egomaniacal, ahistorical, presentistic madness. And no, education doesn't need any more radical revolutions. It needs a schism. Not a civil war, but a schism. But let me correct myself. The political problem in education isn't presentism at all. That's a perhaps a misnomer. It is an aggressive presentistic stance, though we have to judge the past in terms of the present, and that basically the present is all good, which naturally includes us, we, we in the present, and that the past is bad. It's an anti-past stance. Sure, but it's messianic in terms of conceiving of itself as the messiah, or as I said, the hero of the story. So, in the beginning, before me, everything and everyone was awful, but then I arrived. This presentistic idea is, I assure you, alive and well in education. In education schools, anyway. Why would anyone think this way? Simple. Conditioning. They have been told as much. They have been told not only the creation myth, the fable about how doubly bad education was, but also that they get to participate um, in this, this pivot point in history that now all of a sudden teaching and teachers are good. And that I think for probably 100 years, this has been what we tell new young teachers, right? That you are here to save and to fix everything. You're going to heal the soul of the world. So they've been conditioned to think this way. And they're also conditioning students to think this way too, more and more. So they think it because they've been told it. And to in any way positively associate this with critical is utterly absurd. A generation of learners was told, the world is bad, go fix it. By a generation of educators, practitioners, who were told that same thing by a generation of educationalists or pedagogues, theoreticians. Without any serious critical consideration of this, blindly uncritical adoption of a wildly cynical perspective. This is why they cling to the term critical so tightly. Only by selling themselves as the opposite of what they are can they advance their program. Yes, they are radicals in politics and, like politicians' famous fatal flaw, radically dishonest. But they're also radically uncritical. This is why the term cult is used. The culture of education is a cult to Freire and Dewey and Rousseau in that order. The other major contradictions... These radical change agent messiahs 
need to be protected against any and all unpopular opinions. So now I'm shifting the focus of emphasis from teachers onto students, right? This, this third generation from the theoretical pedagogues onto a whole generation of teachers and now onto a generation of students. So these students as radical change agent messiahs need to be protected against any and all unpopular opinions because ideas they do not share are a threat to their very existence somehow. They are so vulnerable, so in need of protection. And again, we can also think of the epidemic of mental illness amongst young people, anxiety and depression. They're so vulnerable, they're so in need of protection, yet they are also here to reshape reality and so ostensibly possess the powers of the gods. The messianic or godlike epic heroes whom we fully expect to crumble at the mere whiff of the mildest of threats. Why does it start to seem that all of this critical radical transformation and the agential army to assert that agenda, and again, let's not forget the well-intentioned, useful idiots who are, yes, also uncritical dupes. Again, here I'm thinking of teachers, actually, again. Uncritical dupes because of the ring of words like diversity and equity and inclusion in their ears pleases and indeed indulges their egos. They are all only capable of destroying our shared culture from within. They don't want to change anything. They don't want to do anything. They only want to undo everything. Their thinking is purely and unremittingly negative. To wound is to heal, to destroy is to create, and dereliction is their duty. Let me shift to part two with another topical detour. So I'm, I'm wrapping up that, again, excellent article with another topical detour just a few days later um, from Real Time with Bill Maher, October 14th, episode 616, and a really brief and, and perhaps seemingly quite innocuous comment from Neil deGrasse Tyson regarding education. And he started by saying, this is near the beginning of the panel segment of the show, saying, quote, I don't have a silver bullet. And hearing this, you can expect that such a person is then going to proceed to suggest one, right? I don't have a silver bullet, but you know, all, what we need to do or all we really need, right, following this structure, um, the silver bullet for K-12 that I think is being implied here is uh, that there should be a course on spotting, pardon my French, bullshit. A course on spotting bullshit. Quote, to spot bullshit, there should be a course. Quote, this is how the world actually is put together. And if things conflict with that, that does not make it true. Again, I think it just on its surface, it probably seems quite innocuous and harmless, but what jumps out here? 
So the first thing I noticed was this notion of an, the actual world, right? How the world actually is, which I'm kind of shortening into actual world. So there's the actual world. And if what you may think conflicts with that, it may not be true. So I infer that how the world actually is, yes, that's the actual world, like I said. But also what's being suggested here is that there is an official or an authoritative world or narrative about the world. And conflict, not conflict, but that if you conflict with the official or authoritative world, it certainly seems to suggest to me doubt, right? That you, you conflict with the way the world actually is. I mean, you doubt what is official or authoritative. I don't think I'm taking any really big leaps here. Um, but if I am, I'm certainly open to, to you know, to, to make a correction, I suppose. And what I, where I, where I do make a, perhaps a, a moderate or medium leap is from where he says, not true. That does not make it true. I think what's not true really to me suggests untrue or false. Now he's not outright saying that it's false or it's wrong, right? If what you think conflicts with the way the world actually is, then you're wrong. But I think actually that is really what he thinks, what he's saying. Uh, this came up a number of years ago, Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, you know, the thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. And it was pointed out in a, an article kind of criticizing this is that you could say this about anything. I mean, you could say this about history or about philosophy, that it's true whether you believe it or not. It's just kind of, a, again, a misunderstanding. But that was really about this falsely privileging science. Scientism, right, was kind of the, the critique there. So really, I think what he is saying here, strangely, is also a violation of his own principles. I think it's just not really well thought out. I think it's just kind of off the cuff. And so I'm not, you know, really attacking him. Um, but this is just the way that it, the ring that it has to me, is that this is authority, and if you doubt that, then you're wrong. To doubt authority is wrong. And again, nothing could be further from critical thinking, which really I think is what he's talking about. That's synonymous with BS spotting. And again, the idea that this is a tool appropriate for students as early as kindergarten to start to acquire also is absurd. This is also just a consequence that K-12 education is just something that everyone feels quite comfortable commenting upon. Which, you know, fair enough, we all have a stake in K-12 education. The only thing that can actually exist is literacy. Right? If you want kids as early as kindergarten to start to acquire the this ability to be able to see what is and what is not true, then you're, I mean, how is literacy not where you would actually start? Again, rather than directly teaching the thing that you want at the end. 
Okay. But in the context of the political discussion where the comment arose, I think this is really the political literacy claim. So it's Freire, and it reflects the dominant pedagogical ideology that it's not a minority viewpoint that he's suggesting. It's the clear dominant majority view. Why don't we have a course that teaches kids as early as kindergarten how to spot BS, how to suss out the truth? Okay, kids, here's how you discover what's true in the world. And so, actually, this is why it's not just a silly point, because it's a real danger in this, in this political sense. Concealing political so-called literacy or so-called political literacy in the name of critical thinking. This is indoctrination in what to think, dressed up as real critical education in how to think. Because if people had the right, quote-unquote, tools they'd arrive at the correct opinions. And I think implicit in this, if kids in education were given the right tools, they would think like me. I do think that that's being implied, and that, that may seem un unfair. But I think if you, I mean, if you watch the show and you listen to the segment, I think that there is a trace of that there, but it's, it's hard to substantiate. That's more of, you know, just an inference. Uh, if people had the right tools, they'd arrive at the correct opinions, implicitly, that they'd agree with me, because a good education would prevent the wrong opinions. But really, those who have the wrong opinions must be uneducated, because educated people do not have political opinions aligned with, in this case, conservative or Republican ideas. And, note, it would be just as wrong as an argument to suggest that progressive Democrats only think that way because of a lack of education or lack of experience. So coming back to the substance, let me use a, briefly, let me try to use a coaching or sports analogy. If the ultimate goal of something is to reach the highest expression of that art, let's say, or that sport, then why not start with that? Why not start with the highest expression I mean, if that's the ultimate goal anyway, just start doing that at the very beginning. For example, right, a highly educated person possesses this critical BS spotting ability or capacity. So why not teach that to kids directly? Because it's doomed to fail. Why? Because of fundamentals. Now, I already mentioned literacy, but let me try basketball. If you want to dunk from the free throw line, then why not just start teaching that to really young players? Because that would be useless. Without the fundamentals, these upper reaches are useless. But really, I think of the food analogy as my default. You cannot skip straight to dessert. The thing you want at the end, the sweetest thing, is something that comes later. Okay, so bring it back to education. This sweet dessert thing, that's critical thinking. That's BS spotting, and that comes much, much later. It's 
actually, in my view, a byproduct of a long quality education. And it's only achieved indirectly, and it's largely acquired passively. The best thinkers in the world did not take courses and extensively study thinking. That's just not how real education and learning actually works. It's almost maddening to think of people thinking this way. Oh, that person's a great thinker. They must have studied thinking. And if we want other people to be great thinkers like them, they need to study thinking. It's almost staggering like to even know what to try to say. Especially when K K to 12, kindergarten, you know absolutely nothing about the world. And you're going to make these, you know, complicated determinations between truth and falsehood without having any general knowledge of things to rely upon. So, for example, one of the many elements to, again, this, this dessert, this critical thinking BS spotting is research. Okay? That if you hear something that doesn't sound quite right, based on all of your you know, years of learning and your experience in the world, then you would research. You could look into it and you could further inform yourself. And one of the many elements of research is literacy. And one of the many elements of literacy might be phonics. So that's why you don't start teaching BS spotting to little kids. You would instead start with something like phonics and then eventually move to literacy and then move to research and then maybe start to move to things like, I mean, I'm actually not a believer in in critical thinking courses or BS spotting courses because I just don't really see that it can be effective. But like anything with education, have some pilot programs, okay? And and demonstrate that you're able to take people from being less to being more critical in their thought. It doesn't have to be a national revolution. Okay, now... I don't want to make a straw man or fixate on kindergarten when he said K to 12. But it's a fair interpretation that it could start as early as K, uh, uh, kindergarten. Uh, that's what he said, K to 12. And again, it is obviously doomed without fundamentals. And then you get beyond the fundamentals and all of the other intermediate steps before the highest expression is possible. I mean, maybe instead of dessert, I'm, I can think of board games. I can think of Monopoly. It's just, you know, go, is it go directly to go? Proceed directly to go. Just move all the way around the board and land on go and get your 200 or 400 Monopoly dollars. That might seem like a very efficient, streamlined way to do something and to proceed through something right? Let's just get to what we want at the end right away, right? But uh, you can think of another absurd example. Okay, well, we want all these kids to be well-educated. So let's have a course in well-educatedness that will start teaching them directly, okay? So here's how to be well-educated. And obviously that's ridiculous and we don't do that because 
of course, that's what we're already doing. That's all we're doing all the time. It is all one large, not a course, but it's all a program, right? The curriculum is meant to do that. And then people want to start adding and changing things to the curriculum in order to to make certain things more explicit. And all they're doing is distorting or even corrupting that curriculum. And so making it less capable of meeting its its own goals or its own vision and basically slowing it down or in a non-pejorative retarding this process this uh, sequential incremental movement through things that I think basically I, I don't even think there is such a thing as an education that does not include critical thinking again these are just the people who think that education used to just be I don't know what, just cruelty and memorization, and that's all it ever was. <laughs> and that it had to be radically transformed uh, by people like Dewey. And I, I mean, I don't accept the premise. Okay. So that's all I want to say on these two topical points uh, in October of 2022. Thank you very much for listening. And be well.